0: welcome to mormon book reviews where an evangelical encounters the restoration um this is part two of a very special series that i am having with a very interesting gentleman uh benjamin schaefer the polygamist is back uh welcome to the program
1: thanks for having me on
0: so uh basically uh, i thought i got a lot of great responses from people um we were just i was just discussing with benjamin a a very prominent podcaster who was giving me a blow-by-blow uh commentary of the interview as he was watching it today and um, so it's a lot of people have been very interested to hear a lot of the doctrines that we discussed yesterday and they were very pleased with the questions I asked and of course very interested in the answers you gave and I thought you gave some fascinating answers that really gave me some insight into your your worldview Um, even I felt like you kind of were giving us like the mindset of even Brigham Young you know, kind of giving us a better idea of how well, we I,
1: I hope he and I would agree, you know, if we ever had a chance to uh, sit down and have a beer together, as they say.
0: That's right. And and would Brigham Young sit down and have a beer with you?
1: I think Brigham Young would. Yeah.
0: <laughs> okay, so We're, we're going to talk about the word of wisdom later on as well, folks. So this uh-huh. should be fun. So um, basically what I wanted to do was start the interview was we're going to discuss maybe some, you know, uh, doctrines and current issues and stuff like that. But before we do that, I want uh, Benjamin to tell his story. Because obviously you allude to it in last week's episode, in which you said, you know, he was a missionary. Uh, you, you did some stuff in the CES as well. Is that correct? Uh, is that what you yep. said? Yep.
1: Yeah. So, I uh, was a seminary teacher. I taught release time for a while. I taught early morning seminary.
0: Okay. So let's talk a little bit. The, we're going to we're gonna talk about that. So what I want to do is I want you to tell me a little bit about where you were born, were you born in the covenant? And then uh, maybe then we'll lead on to your journey into joining the Christchurch organization. So.
1: So, uh, my parents are both converts to Mormonism. My dad from kind of a agnostic background, just kind of a non church attending background. Uh, my mother from a very devout Catholic background. She, uh, went through all, all of her years of school in Catholic school. She even considered, um, becoming a nun and, um, taking orders and all of that. Now, very, very devout. Uh, her family, uh, some of them are still very very active in their parishes and and whatnot um but yeah my they both were converts to mormonism joined the mainstream lds church and then raised me in in the gospel uh but of course that does i also knew other family members of, from these other traditions uh so it wasn't like a the traditional background of a pioneer background. However, uh, I do have almost a pioneer ancestor. I'm from the half of the family that uh, was not convinced by the early Mormon missionaries and didn't go west with Brigham Young and decided to uh, stay back east and stay Protestant.
0: Okay, so that's interesting. Now, when you say back east, where are we
1: talking about? Uh, mostly Ohio and Pennsylvania. Okay. Um, and so, and I still have some Relatives there that are still enough of contact that I've met them uh, that were from the non-Mormon branch uh, that had stayed behind, Um, but still I was raised I was raised very very Mormon very LDS Uh, I learned to read with the Book of Mormon. Occasionally it'll still like pop up in my language that I my interior dialogue. You know we all have this interior dialogue that. The way, the way I think, the way I speak, sometimes comes out in Book of Mormon grammar, which is not exactly, uh, you know, modern English or anything like that. Um, <laughs> and it's even then, Book of Mormon's a little bit more um, idiosyncratic even than King James English, really. Um, so So that was my background. I was fully devoted, fully involved. In fact, it never really occurred to me pretty much until I was all the way in Christchurch, church, it never really even occurred to me until things had really come to a head that it was even possible that I wasn't representing absolute orthodoxy. Hmm. You know, the, uh, I, I didn't think that I was this fringe person. I wasn't the apostate. I, I was you know, puzzled by people who would say things like, oh, well, Brigham Young taught that. And then I would realize later that they meant that in a negative way, like, uh, well, it must be false. Um, and I thought, well, I'm the one who's sustaining the prophet here. Clearly, I'm not the one who's the apostate. Um, and yet, uh, you know, right up right up till the very, very end of um, uh, being in the church, I felt that what I was doing was just trying to be true and faithful to my testimony. And, and I still really see it that way. Uh, people will say, well, why did you leave your your faith or why, how could you betray your church or uh, what made you lose your testimony? I never lost my testimony. In fact, I never even really changed uh, my testimony. I was simply being faithful to the religion that I was brought up in. And the religion I was brought up in was abandoned by uh, that church, by the mainstream LDS church. Um, They're the ones who did all the moving. They're the ones who did all the leaving. I didn't leave the church. The church left me. Um,
0: That's so kind of the way I felt. Like. So you alluded last time in our interview that you actually had that engagement with that um, Orthodox bishop, in which he kind of showed you that he had the lineage, he had the papers to prove uh, his right. background. And you had said that mm-hmm. at that moment it really challenged you. Was that the first time that you had an inkling of something not quite right, or maybe a claim that you thought was true? I mean. To, to, Talk a little bit about that, and then talk Uh, about maybe other things that may have transpired before or after that.
1: I I suppose I've been wrong before that, and I've been wrong after plenty of times. I'm sure I'll be wrong in the future at some point. Um, (laughs) Of course, we generally agree with our own opinions, right? Most most human beings think they're right about the things they think, otherwise they wouldn't think that way. Um, But uh, but that was definitely. I, I don't know that it gave me an inkling that something was wrong with the church as much as it gave me an inkling that. Um, maybe the way I'd thought about apostasy was, wasn't the whole story of what apostasy means. Um, I had thought of apostasy in terms of institutional loyalty and here I met a guy with absolute institutional loyalty and well-documented institution. So, um, yeah, that did make me think a little differently about, well, what is it that I'm being loyal to? Am I being loyal to a tradition or am I being loyal to principles of faith? Um, or truths, transcendent truths, and and yeah, I think that, that that probably was one of those moments. Though at the time, it didn't necessarily seem like a watershed moment. Uh, these things in, are often far more powerful in retrospect, right? But um, but it did make me think about it differently, and that's why I started thinking about ordinances the way I did. I talked about last time, where it was a matter of if God has a commandment, it's based on some truth or some attribute of God. Uh, you know, for example. Um, God is loving; therefore, a commandment like "Thou shalt not kill." Um, it isn't just; these aren't just two completely unrelated premises. The Ten Commandments, for example, explain attributes of God. Uh, for example, even the Sabbath day; it says that the Lord rested on the seventh day and hallowed it, sanctified it. Um, and so, when we're when we're looking at commandments or practices or ordinances or things that we do to express our religious faith, I think and this is true of most most all religions. What we're doing is we are imitating the divine in some way. It's an it's a hint toward understanding the attributes of God. And so changing a commandment, in my mind, would be changing the theology. It would change the attributes of God, what makes God God. Um, and this was one of the first times I really drew that first parallel that, gee, I, I think it's really important then that... If apostasy isn't just about institutions, it's about principles. It's about truth. Um, It helped me. uh, I suppose it was. It's one of those building blocks of my life that that led me to looking at things in that way, uh, as I see them now. Uh, So my story. I think one of the biggest steps in my journey was becoming a temple worker in the Taipei Taiwan Temple. Um, Now I'd done a bunch of volunteer work in the Saint George Temple before that. but I hadn't been authorized to do all of the temple ordinances. It wasn't until I was a temple worker in the Taipei, Taiwan temple, um, and gee, why was I in Taipei? Um, It was just a good job. After I got my bachelor's degree, I thought, uh, well, what should I do? I should teach somewhere. And I thought, you know, teaching at an international school in another country would be a lot more interesting, a lot more fun than getting a job in Cedar City, Utah. So I moved to Taipei and uh, took my family there. I was already married at the time. had my oldest child in Cedar City. Uh, My second child was born in Taiwan. Uh, Just absolutely loved it there. Uh, But the temple isn't as well attended there as I guess I would have hoped. And so we did a lot of temple work in English. And our English-speaking ward there uh, had a member of the area presidency. It had the uh, mission president, the temple president, you know, all the, all those people. So you kind of rubbed elbows more with general authorities more often and things like that, being that that was kind of the center of Mormonism in Taiwan. Um, So anyways, I got called to be a temple worker. And at that point I got to do all of the ordinances and uh, learn how to, you know, run a session uh, for the endowments and perform each of the ordinances. And one of the things that uh, was really an interesting thing at that time and this will date me a little bit. It was the early 2000s. They took out an ordinance, set of ordinances called the washing and anointings or the initiatory ordinances. And they added this preamble that said in ancient times, this ordinance was done where people were washed and anointed and clothed in the, in the uh, robes of the Holy priesthood. Um, and it quotes a verse out of Exodus about Aaron and his sons being brought to the doorway, of the tabernacle of the congregation and washed with water and anointed and, and taken upon them the sacred garments. Um, but then it says, but in our day, you will be washed and anointed only symbolically as follows, after which instead of actually washing and anointing and initiate or clothing them in any holy clothing, you would simply place your hands on their head and tell them that they'd been washed, tell them that they'd been anointed, essentially giving them this only symbolically was the phrase. And this disturbed me greatly. I think this is the first time I really thought, man, this doesn't seem right at all. Um, Because we were taking something very, very literal, very, very sacred, and we were turning it into something that was pared down so significantly that it didn't contain all the same original symbolism um, or meaning. And it just felt like we're swapping one ordinance for a whole new ordinance, really. The same way that I would feel that baptism, for example, by sprinkling, uh, on the head of an infant, which is something that, uh, for example, this Greek Orthodox uh, guy would do um, as well. Uh, in place of baptism, the immersion of a believer, it's just like such a different set of doctrines that go with that, such such a different set of worldviews that go with that. And I feel like this isn't just analogous. This is exactly the same thing. Um, this is exactly what I was saying that Bishop was doing. That's why I felt that that uh, Orthodox Bishop didn't have the priesthood, was because it, it didn't matter that he was properly ordained. They changed the ordinance, they changed the commandment, they changed the doctrine. It wasn't the same religion anymore, but from my point of view, from my belief system, as the original pure doctrine of Christ that Jesus taught while he was on the earth. Um, and so how could it how could we do the same exact thing, take something that was literally one thing, replace it with something else. So at that point I felt like there's a lot of stuff missing. So I, I remember um, distinctly one conversation I had with the temple president at the time. I sat down with him in his office and I said to him, well, how can we make these changes? And he said, oh, that's not all. There are lots of other changes that have been made in the past and lots of other changes that will probably be made in the future. And we went over some of that and I said, well, how can it be legitimate if we're changing the doctrines and we're changing the covenants and we're changing the, the meaning of what what all this is. Um, and he said, well, we've got to be, we've got to just trust that the Lord knows what he's doing and and that if we follow the direction of the prophet, we'll be fine. And I thought, how's that different from following the dictates of, uh, say the Bishop of Rome, if you're a Roman Catholic or following any of these other, um, these other people, those institutions persist. That doesn't mean that they're right. Um, And one of them that was a big question for me is something called the second endowment. Um, And I asked him, you know, I said, look, uh, lots of times we view Mormons, especially modern Mormons, have often viewed the gospel in terms of like a checklist. So you do the whole checklist. If you go on a mission and you get married in the temple and you do all the temple ordinances, then you've done it. You've you've arrived. You're 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 going to go to the best heaven. You're going to go to the celestial kingdom and it'll all be fine. And I remember thinking, I I ran out of things on my checklist. I was telling him, I did everything that I was asked to do. What's next? And his answer was basically, oh, no, there's nothing next. Just, you know, just stay faithful to the church and it'll all work out. And I was like, but I know there's some next stuff. There's things like the second endowment that I've read about in church history. And he said, well, yeah, there is, but it's not necessary. And I said, I don't care if it's necessary. I want to do it. Just real
0: quick, it, is this is second yeah. endowment? Is this the same as the second anointing, or is this
1: something different? The second anointing is a, is an important portion of the second endowment. Okay, very good, thank you. Um, and I was like, well, how do I get that? You know, and he's like, oh, but it's not necessary. And I was like, I don't care if it's necessary. What if I just want the blessings? What if I just want to learn more? I I, I like to progress in the gospel. I like this stuff. Um, it's not me trying to get out of it. It's me trying to get it, you know? And he's like, and uh, he's like, well, I don't know if that's something you can do. And I said, well, you know, how does one do it? And he said, I don't know. And I asked him, well, you're the temple president. If it's going to be performed in the temple and you don't have it, who does have it? And he basically said, I don't know if anybody on the earth has it. It's probably lost to time. It's probably one of those things in Mormonism that we just don't do anymore you know, like plural marriage or things like that. Now, I understand that there are some reports, by the way, your listeners might be interested to know that it's been more or less revived probably by Jeffrey R. Holland um, and that they've been at least somewhat uh, secretive about it, about who can talk about it and who can receive it. Um, And don't get me wrong, I appreciate a little bit that he's trying to revive that. But again, I don't see that as much different than say, um, well, for example, I did speak to a Roman Catholic priest once who did bapt believers baptism. Now he still um, sprinkled infants, but he actually encouraged his parishioners and had full authority to do this from his Bishop and Archbishop and the Cardinals. Um, they said that even in the Catholic church, it is okay to do believers baptism as well. And so he did a believers immersive baptism and encouraged people to do that after they'd received their first communion and things like that. Um, Reviving a practice, even if I view that as the true practice, reviving it later again, I'm not sure that that has any validity. Uh, so, so those who would who would say to uh, my story at this point, oh yeah, but Jeffrey R. Holland apparently does it, and apparently there have been a few others uh, who, you know, maybe even a few thousand Mormons who have done this other ordinance. That doesn't do it for me any more than the Catholic priest who was doing it, because. Um, As far as I'm concerned, reviving a practice after it's been lost is not the same thing as having a consistent tradition. Um, But anyways, that's neither here nor there. Basically, what that led me to do was just kind of search my soul a little bit and feel like maybe everything isn't right in Zion, but that doesn't mean there's anything better anywhere else. So I felt I kind of felt grateful that I had received the washing and anointing clothing ordinances that I talked about before they were changed. But I also felt guilty for for being grateful um because there was a certain sense that any any appreciation on my part for the ordinance as it was was essentially the fact that I didn't appreciate the new ordinance nearly as much and that that felt like disloyalty to the institution it felt like well isn't the prophet saying that this is better this is this is progress changing the ordinances is progress uh, is what I'm being told by my by these church leaders and by these general authorities. And it didn't feel like progress. It felt like loss. It felt like a tragedy to me. And um, I felt guilty for feeling that way because I should see eye to eye with them. I should see the value in changing the ordinances. And, of course, this is only worse when I did an in-depth study. And I've done a lot of very in-depth study in the history of temple ordinances. Every time a change was made, I can see why they made it. And it was usually because people didn't like it the old way, and they thought it would be better the new way, or there was some practical consideration. In every case, though, they lost important symbolism, or even worse, some of the changes when they actually changed covenants. And I thought, if we're not making the same covenants with God, we're just not doing the same ordinances. But I still felt like, look, even if I feel that the LDS temple is only a shadow of its former self, At least it's a shadow of its former self. And any other place I looked in Mormonism, um, the Eastern churches, as they're called, say, the Community of Christ, the Church of Jesus Christ, um, the various ites, the Bickertonites, the Fettingites, whatnot, most of them don't do temples. Um, Though it is worth mentioning, I had an amazing temple experience in Kirtland with the Community of Christ that was so deeply imbued with um, temple symbolism that I thought it almost funny that they didn't consider that a temple endowment ceremony. It was absolutely, uh, fundamentally Mormon and Christian and Gnostic in so many important ways. I felt like, ah, I've done it. I got my endowments in the community of Christ. And of course, community of Christ, people were like, no, we don't do any of that temple nonsense. Uh, But they did have a beautiful service that was so filled with so many of the same similar themes and archetypes. At least maybe this is just because I'm a bit of a Jungian and I like archetypes. that I just, I couldn't help but think that that, that was basically an endowment. It's hmm. their own version, but, you know. Um, well, but anyways. Real
0: quick, real quick the, did yeah. you talk to the Cutlerites? Because apparently they, are, they still do the original yeah. 1844 endowment.
1: So I've talked to the Cutlerites um, a little bit, but not much. Uh, my biggest concern or impression with uh, claiming that they do an original is that they have been very adamant from the beginning and continue to remain adamant that nothing of that nature should ever be written down. And so when you say it's original, I would say, do they have an institutional tradition? Yes, they do. But that tradition is purely an oral tradition that at some time periods has gone decades and decades without any actual performance. How much is retained? No one should, no one could really know unless they could compare the present state of their remembrances and what the, and something more original some more original record and there is no way to do that so um, I know people will often say hey the colorites do the original endowment and I would say I don't know maybe they do but I I expect it has probably evolved significantly um, personally I just think it's been about 200 years since then I bet you it's evolved significantly um, But of course, I believe in Christchurch that we do do the original endowment. Um, And why am I more confident in that? Well, because it comports with all the records that we have. But once again, that's still a faith claim. Um, Even in the LDS tradition under Brigham Young, it was entirely an oral tradition from Nauvoo and the early beginnings, even the beginnings in Kirtland. It was entirely oral, just like I'm saying of the Cutlerites, until 1877. The very first outline of any written down thing was done in 1877. And it was in order to train temple workers and get rid of irregularities. They talked about how there were irregularities occurring and differences of opinion about uh, how to phrase certain things or uh, what to do. And so it really wasn't until the St. George Temple was nearing completion that they actually said, you know what, we really need to write this down in order to keep the oral tradition from evolving away from what we believe to be the original.
0: So what makes you think that the oral tradition didn't evolve enough in a 30-year-old period, as opposed to the Cutlerites, that you're kind of actually, there could be a possibility that they're, they could have lost something, uh, mm-hmm. right?
1: Uh, I, I, I do agree. Yes, it's possible. I'm just saying that uh, 200 years of, of um, a smaller institution doing fewer, less memorization, less um, double checks, less uh, of that over a 200-year period is going to be, I think, more filled with error than a 30-year period with many, many people actively engaged in trying to keep it the same.
0: Okay, and I guess you could use the parallel that many of the Gospels took decades, 30, 40 years before they were written
1: down. That's true. Yeah, okay. And so, uh, undoubtedly, like, if if I had a time machine, I could go back and I could listen to the Sermon on the Mount, you know, directly from the Lord. It wouldn't surprise me at all if there aren't phrasing differences. I mean, that is if I could, you know, bring a, a scholar of Aramaic with me or something, right? Um, I wouldn't surprise me at all if he's like, actually, it's this one little thing is different in the Beatitudes. And people wouldn't be like, whoa, like we should go back and fix the Bible. Like, uh, I don't believe in biblical inerrancy. I think it's quite possible that there might be some minor variations there. <laughs>
0: cool, cool. Yeah. So, I, so basically, you know, this is really fascinating. So you basically mm-hmm. took the journey of the Restoration Uh, looking Mm -hmm. at all the other churches, because I, 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 you know, of course, I'm kind of talking Mm -hmm. to the same people, obviously, too. And I'm taking a similar journey from a different perspective, if you will. Um, Mm -hmm. But so tell me, so you maybe tell me anything else about this journey. Yeah. Yeah, And then and then see where it led to. Mm
1: -hmm. So I I spoke with people. I mean, I checked out all their websites and I spoke with people from a bunch of different Mormon sects. Um, I also spoke with Mormon fundamentalists of several different stripes. I spoke with uh, several different 70s in what's called the AUB, the Apostolic United Brethren. Um, I spoke with um, a bunch of different uh, what are called independent Mormon fundamentalists. They're not a group because they don't actually associate with each other. But the largest number of Mormon fundamentalists, for example, are independents, uh, people who believe that they're trying to do their best to stick to the original doctrines of Mormonism, but affiliate with no organized church. Um, So I spoke with several of them. Um, I've spoken with the Centennial Park Group. Um, I couldn't get a hold of the FLDS. Uh, Was also a bit afraid of them because they were definitely the weirdest and and most upsetting from what I'd heard from the outside. I've spoken with quite a few uh, Kingstons as well. And and anyways, as I spoke to them, my major questions really centered around... Yeah, but what about the temple ordinances? Because don't forget, that was the thing that kind of set me on this mindset was, maybe everything isn't right in the LDS church, but does anybody else have more? Or do they have less? Because all of these institutions have their traditions. All of them have ordination lines. But which ones actually had the original and complete ordinances of the gospel? Um, And as I spoke with each of them, I felt that each of them was missing some vital point and usually um, focusing a great deal on some tertiary point. You know, everybody has their own, um, their own gospel hobby or favorite thing. In some cases, I feel like um, it's like a symphony where people will have a favorite part and they'll play that, that one key. Uh, For example, say the seventh day Adventist they've named their church after the seventh day and the advent, two of their most important doctrines. But it does mean that at least traditionally they focus on those doctrines primarily, almost to the exclusion of other doctrines. And I felt that basically that's what I saw. Everybody had a piece of the pie. I met good Latter-day Saints in all of those groups. None of them felt, I, I didn't feel like any of them could offer me anything more, just something different. Uh, The LDS church had a pared-down temple, but at least it had a temple. Most of the other churches didn't have that. The AUB does have um, two uh, ordinance buildings. One they just simply call the OB, the ordinance building. The other one is more often called a temple. That one's in Mexico. Um, and, And yet, when I ask them questions about, well, what about other aspects of the gospel? What about missionary work? What about... Um, redeeming the dead. Uh, how much of this are we involved in? How much authority do you have to do it? How did you receive your your these ordinances? I was not satisfied with any of the answers. I felt most more comfortable with the AUB than with many. But again, so much of their focus was polygamy, polygamy, polygamy. And like I said earlier um, in, in the last interview, it's a part of the gospel uh, as I see it. Uh, polygamy is a thing that happens in the Bible. It's a thing that happens now. Um, I didn't have a problem with it. But it's hardly the central focus. It's hardly the central theme uh, in my mind. And and so while I didn't want to go to a church that didn't embrace all truth, I didn't want to go to a church that um, was so focused on one little aspect that they did it to the exclusion of other truths. So I felt like like a pie. I didn't want to trade one piece for another piece. I wanted the whole the whole perspective, the whole worldview uh, that the gospel of Jesus Christ could provide me.
0: Now, just real quick, I just uh, I just want to deviate mm-hmm. just for a second. I know, basically, you wanted to stay within the confines of the Restoration, but because of this show and what it represents, I kind of want to know, did you sure. ever entertain any ideas of other churches within my movement or Eastern Orthodoxy, Catholicism, Catholicism you know, or anything like that?
1: I did. Um, I did extensively, actually. Um, that's a whole nother rabbit hole, I suppose, but I'll try to be brief. I became a kajupa in the, in a Tibetan Buddhist tradition. It's one of the four primary schools of Tibetan Buddhism. Uh, when I lived in Taiwan, I actually studied, uh, for quite a while with a, a master there, uh, who was connected to several of the major important, um, Buddhist traditions. And I actually received the preliminary practices. Um, and so I, I'm a full blown fide Buddhist. Um, I also, um, I also studied and considered seriously um, converting to Orthodox Judaism. Um, the Chabad uh, movement of Orthodox Judaism is has great outreach. Most of my friends were either conservative um, or reformed Jews, and I went to each of those different styles of synagogue. Um, and I did consider that pretty seriously as well. Um, I know it might be upsetting for some of you or some uh, some of your listeners to hear, but I never seriously considered Protestantism. Hmm. Um, I felt like that was more or less um, a break off of a break off. If Catholicism and Eastern Orthodoxy are only shadows of their original glory as um, true Christian Christianity, then I felt that Protestantism was just another step further away um that's kind of been my view. I mean I know Mormons even very um I even know polygamist Mormons who celebrate the Reformation Day. In fact there's a Reformation Day party coming up here in a few days, right? Instead of a Halloween party where they talk about Martin Luther and and all of that as being an important part of their tradition. And yet it's never felt like it was part of my tradition. I felt like um I embraced the book of M- M- Bible because I embraced the book of Mormon first. I embraced Christianity because of Mormonism, and if I was going to lose my Mormonism, the things that I felt the most affinity to were Judaism, if I was going to have a deity, and Buddhism, if it was going to be primarily based on um, on a philosophical um, and meditative practice. And so I experienced both of those pretty extensively. Um, I never did actually uh, have my minion or go go uh, go to the mikveh or you know get bar mitzvahed. So I'm I'm not a Jew. Uh, not by any of those standards, even though I have some Jewish ancestors. Um, and but I'm, but I'm a bona fide Buddhist, and I really did consider that. And that was probably the struggle. I started sa- feeling like the church doesn't have all truth. So the first thing I'm going to do is look for where else can I find that truth. And the first thing I really did was become a Buddhist. But my Buddhist friends didn't understand my Mormonism. My Mormon friends didn't understand my Buddhism. It was really hard to make those two play nice, and I couldn't really decide is my Mormonism a small part of my Buddhism or is my Buddhism a smaller part of my Mormonism? It, it was kind of a cosmology question. Um, which one's the bigger cosmology is Buddhism a true philosophy that fits within Mormon Mormonism or is Mormonism a, a smaller worldview that fits within a larger context of Buddhism. And I don't know that I really resolved that until after I'd been in Christchurch for a while. Um, so how did that happen? Basically I talked to all these different groups of Mormons felt like, None of them really had anything additional to offer me and that I was just going to continue with my being half Mormon, half Buddhist. And I did that for three or four years. Um, And I more or less gave up looking into other branches of the restoration. I started kind of summarizing it down to a litmus test. Do you have a temple? What do you do in that temple? And in most cases, people would say, no, we don't have a temple. And occasionally they'd say, yes, we have a temple. But then I'd say, what do you do in it? And they'd say, well, we mostly just pray because we're not sure about the ordinances or something like that, if they were of a Mormon bent. Or, again, um, Judaism appealed because I felt like I could get back to the the core, the original monotheism. Um, but then I started to realize, no, they're just as much of a break-off of a break-off of a break-off uh, as any other monotheism. It'd be one thing if I could sit down with Abraham and say, hey, what's your religion about, buddy? Um, teach me uh, about your God. It was something else entirely to say that Judaism was the original because I, the more I learned about Talmudic Judaism, the more I realized that that is not Jesus' Judaism either, right? Um, it's also evolved drastically over the centuries. So, so again, I was looking for the original. And why was I looking for the original? I guess there's this idea that the source of all truth is God and that God is the source of all truth, imparts that truth in its purity to man— but then I felt that once it's in the hands of man, it gets messed up over time. I never I never changed that worldview. I felt like direct experience of God with God is what mattered. So I was looking at Gnosticism and Buddhist practice and, and all these things. Well, like I said, I'd more or less given up on looking at other branches of Mormonism, uh, seriously at least, and had relegated all of them down to this simple litmus test. And nobody was answering that question until a different mormon um break off an independent mormon fundamentalist actually um who knew of my little litmus test called me up and he said hey guess what i heard of some people who can pass your test and i said who's that and they said well it's this group called the branch um i didn't know the name christ church yet just that it was called the branch and they said he said they've got a temple it's a pyramid it's a pyramid shaped temple and that intrigued me a little because i'm familiar with um things like sacred geometry a little bit, Uh, the idea that geometry and shapes and symbols have um, these symbolic gospel meanings. For example, that's a big part of masonry. And um, I am, by the way, also a mason. Of course, this is great. OK, <laughs> so there's there's a whole nother rabbit hole to go down. I'm also a Mason. So I was like, well, that's interesting. A, a pyramid. OK, so there must be something to that. So I, I said, give me that guy's phone number. And I had to get a guy's phone number who had it. I had to do a little bit of phone tagging that. Right. The guy who told me I had to ask him who his friend's name was called to that friend, asked him, hey, who do you know about this branch guy who's in this branch? And um, finally got that phone number. And that was uh. The phone number finally of a man who's become a a great friend of mine now, uh, Joseph Denning, who's often engaged in missionary work for for Christ Church, the branch. And he's he's actually an itinerant um, who travels without personal script pretty much full time to preach the gospel. Um, And so I called him up on the phone and started asking him tough questions. And I was very surprised by the answers. Do you have a temple? Yes, actually, we have. Two temples, and we're building a third. And um, what do you do in those temples? Well, we do the ordinances. I was like, "Well, tell me what you mean by ordinances. What about this ordinance? That ordinance? How do you perform them? Are they really the original? How could you know if it's the original? How could you know if it's complete?" Um, At every turn, there was an answer that was far more satisfying than what I'd seen in many other, in many other instances, at least to my, to my understanding. So I decided I had to meet this guy. So on one of his many journeys, he looped down to Arizona, where I lived at the time, south of Tucson, and um, came and visited me. And we spoke for a couple of days straight, it seemed like. I put him up and fed him and things like that, and we just talked and talked. And one of the most interesting things that happened to me was I felt this overwhelming spiritual outpouring of knowledge, this overwhelming... Seeing the new connections. And so he did very little talking, which is the surprising thing, as, as far as a teacher goes, right? He didn't tell me, hey, this is this and that is that, and this is what you need to know, and blah, 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 blah. He didn't do a whole lot of teaching. He kind of said, well, what do you know about this or that gospel principle? And I'd be like, well, I've always been thinking, you know, I, this is what I know, but this is what I also think what about these other doctrines? And then he would be like, Oh, that's true. Let me show you. And then he would show me where that was already part of Mormon doctrine, even stuff that I didn't know about. And he'd say, well, you know what? Mo- no other Mormon group really teaches that anymore, but we do. And, um, and then he'd be like, well, what do you think about such and such? And then I would do most of the talking. Uh, I a really neat manner about that. Cause he wasn't pushy. wasn't trying to make me convert. He was just, we were just going to talk about it. And I found some great insight there, but that does not mean I was like convinced. Right. In fact, uh, took a couple more visits for him to come down before I ever went up to visit them. Um, So, but basically what happened was, uh, and I don't recommend this by the way, any LDS listeners, I don't recommend what I did next, but as soon, uh, because as soon as he left, I went straight to my Bishop and said, Hey, I was talking to this guy from the Southern Mormon church and he brought up some really interesting issues. What do you think about this and this and this? And boy, was that a different experience. Um, I actually really do appreciate uh, that that man, that former bishop, um, because he did have a loving manner about him, but he did not have satisfactory answers to any of those um, deep philosophical, doctrinal, and historical questions about Mormonism. And this is one. This is a common theme for a lot of people who end up leaving the Ilias Church: is that you 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 get confronted with strange new ideas or weird um, problems, and then you don't get satisfactory answers. And he didn't have any of those either. And I. I don't fault him for that, but, uh, he said, you know, you should pray about it. And I thought, you know what? I definitely should. And I know what, I know, kind of know the way I should do it. So I went up to the Mesa temple, the third temple that I was a temple worker at, um, though not as extensively as I was in Taipei. And, um, I went up to the Mesa temple and I just spent all day in the temple. I prayed, I meditated. I thought a lot about it. I participated in the ordinances there that day and I met with the temple presidency um, because in many cases, and I appreciate this, a lot of the temple presidency make themselves available to people who are thinking or contemplating deep questions. Um, and because the temple workers had noticed that I wasn't going you know, to just come and go. I, w- I was there for a while. And I said, do you want to, if you came here pondering deep questions, do you want to talk to the temple presidency about it? And I said, you know, that'd be nice. So went and talked to him. Now, he had a really interesting and inspired thing to say. This is an important part of my story. I didn't feel that I had an answer yet, as, I, as I'd been in the temple that day, about what I should do. And the question I was really asking was, the question I was really asking the Lord was, who's your guy? Who's your prophet? Because I saw this idea that loyalty to a, a prophetic head, a, a leader, was important. Uh, it's almost a Catholic idea, right? Uh, but we Mormons often get in that too, that the, the prophet is the new pope. You know, that we have to have a hierarchy. We have to have this priesthood. Um, structure and therefore it's about loyalty to a leader and that's the kind of questions I was asking in my prayers and I wasn't really feeling that I any inspiration I met with the temple presidency and I didn't tell them that question as much as I started asking them these other questions I mentioned before like why did the temple ordinances change and how is it the same ordinance if we make different covenants or we do different symbols or different practices and all of those things come into play in the endowment because we've overhauled almost every part of it, entire speaking portions, entire instruction portions, including the most sacred symbols that we use in the temple have changed drastically in the way they're being performed. In fact, it was recently confirmed to me though. I'm not a member of that church anymore, but somebody who still is told me that were recent change only in the last several months Um, changing the way in which uh, the ordinances, um, there's a covenant that we call signs, tokens, and penalties. And um, they'd they'd removed whole portions of that and changed some of them already um, back 1990 and also somewhat in the 80s. Um, But he told me that there's yet another change um, and that is that people aren't individually participating anymore in those tokens. Now, um, to me, those things are very, very sacred. And so not to do it is not to do it. It'd be sort of like saying, oh, you're baptized. We just don't immerse you anymore. It's like, well, yeah, but if you didn't participate in what way is it efficacious for you? Um, in what way are you actually taking upon yourself the, the symbols and the, the covenants with God that those things represent? So yeah, even then they've they've got this brand new change, um, that they're doing. Uh, so I went to the temple president. I was asking him about these things. And he said, and I, I did feel the spirit at this point. I felt a powerful spiritual moment. And he said, after we prayed together, he said, I feel that God is telling me to tell you that if you will understand what happened in 1978, you will understand why the ordinances have been changed since then and why they will continue to change. Now, that was interesting to me because he could not have known this, but I was really strongly considering what happened in 1978. Well, Christ's church was established on April 6th, 1978. And our belief is is that at that time, all of the various branches of the restoration, all these different groups that had gone off in different directions, that God said that the times of the Gentiles were fulfilled, that that was the end of the portion of our dispensation in which all those churches were functioning, including the mainstream LDS church. And that it was now time for the gospel to return to Israel. That uh, the gospel would no more, uh, just as at the time of Jesus, the gospel was preached first to the house of Israel, and then he sent the apostles into all the world. After, after Peter saw the napkin um, brought down, and the Lord said um, to bring the gospel to the Gentiles, right? And then, and then of course Paul became the great apostle to the Gentiles. We believe that, uh, and Joseph Smith lays this out, uh, or I shouldn't say Joseph Smith as much as we feel that the Lord lays this out through Joseph Smith in the Doctrine and Covenants, for example, that first shall be last and last shall be first should be interpreted to mean that the gospel was first to Israel and then brought to the world. And that in the latter days, the gospel would be restored to all the world, and then God would remember his covenant with Israel and reestablish Israel. Um, And so I had this feeling, but he didn't know that that's what I was thinking, but he knew that that's exactly what I needed to hear in 1978, what happened. And I felt that what happened in 1978 was the times of the Gentiles were over and that God was remembering the covenant of Israel and gathering Israel again for the last time to restore uh, his ancient covenant. And that that's really what the, what the branch is all about. And that's why we're called the branch. One of the reasons why we're called the branch um, goes back to um, several scriptures, including um, Isaiah chapter 11, um, in the book of Mormon, Jacob chapter five, uh, Zechariah also talks about the branch of the Lord's house in the latter days. And we believe that what we're trying to do, uh, what we've been called to do is gather Israel for the last time to reestablish that final covenant, not just to be the, the latter day Christian church, essentially that uh, was established by the ancient apostles, but to be the religion of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob connecting uh, to the original covenant of God's people and you know, reaching all the way back to Sinai and all the way back to Abraham and then therefore all the way back to Adam to be the original monotheism, essentially the original religion. Um, and that's when they said, yeah, the Lord's approbation re- was removed from the temples April 6th, 1978. And I thought, if that's why the ordinances are changing, that answers my question. Right Um, Now, that wasn't all. Um, I did also get an answer for myself. And it wasn't the answer I was expecting, is all that I'd really like to say about that. I wanted the answer to be, which institution, God? Tell me which church to join. Tell me which institution to trust. Tell me which prophet to follow. And that's not the answer I got at all. The answer I got was, Humble yourself, repent, be baptized. When you make covenants, you know. And so I, I realized, isn't that exactly what this, what the Bible says? Isn't that exactly what the Book Mormon says over and over? It doesn't say, "Hey, follow this guy or that guy." It says, "Repent, humble yourself, have faith, and be baptized." And so I decided to be to be rebaptized and to humble myself and try to be like more like a child, not wanting to know the answer, but just wanting to do what God asked. And so I went home, I fasted and prayed. And in in evangelical terms, I gave my life to Jesus. I, I prayed a prayer in which I said, God, my life is yours. I'll do whatever you want me to do. I'll believe whatever you want me to believe. I'll go wherever you want me to go. My life is yours and all that I have is yours. And I'm placing everything on the altar even my own heart, and I will let you decide what shall be with me. And still th- that wasn't a testimony of Christ Church. That was just a testimony that I was going to do whatever God wanted me to do. But of course the Christ Church missionaries were offering to participate in this ordinance of rebaptism with me. And at the time I was still very scared because I had this feeling like, oh my goodness, if I participate in another baptism, whether that's Christian, Catholic, um or Mormon fundamentalist or anything I'm risking my standing in the church. And if I my standing in the church, I felt like I was risking my exaltation. I was risking the condemnation of God because I'd been taught over and over again, this is God's one true church. And if you ever mess that up, you lose all your blessings. So I remember I was still scared. Um, but I felt like, no, God asked me to, to chill out about all that stuff. He asked me to trust him to pray to repent of my sins, to be baptized. So I was like, I'm just going to go into this baptism with that same childlike attitude. I'm going to try to repent of my sins. I'm going to try to give it all over to to Christ and be baptized. And if I get baptized with these people and I feel no better about their church, then there's no answer about their church. And I maybe won't affiliate with it. Baptism doesn't necessarily make you a member of a church, actually. Um, Right? Baptism is sometimes associated with becoming a member, but it doesn't require it. You can be baptized and not become a member.
0: You decided that membership is, baptism is separate from membership. Um, mm-hmm. So, and then you decided, well, if I felt a certain way even afterwards, that's fine. So maybe I won't affiliate
1: with Christchurch, right? Maybe I won't. But but in the meantime, I'm just going to do this in a sim- just simply as a true offering to God, to give my heart and soul and risk everything, and just do this as an act of repentance. And so I went in to get baptized and that changed everything Hmm. that changed everything. I, I felt this powerful outpouring of the spirit. I felt like I was set afire. My, I, I shook, I was shaken from my head to my toes. Um, and you know, this is, this is something that shouldn't be totally unfamiliar for, um, for, say the shakers and the Quakers they were called that because they they felt that they were shook with God's spirit um, that's how they got those names the um, many many uh, evangelicals will be familiar with this idea of a great outpouring of the spirit or spiritual gifts and the way I, I like to describe it is I felt that in the LDS church that I thought I knew what the light was I had participated in many glorious things. I had a great testimony of the fullness of the gospel as we started through Joseph Smith. I had experienced dreams and visions. I'd I'd felt that in the temple that I'd had some of these, some of my prayers answered about um, going and being baptized, for example. But this was different. It was much more powerful. It was much more authoritative. It was, it was like, I, I imagine that it was like what people said when they heard the words of Jesus, they say, We've heard the doctrine of the scribes and the Pharisees, but you speak as one having authority. The authority of this baptism was different. And so I like to describe it as saying, it was like I had been awake on a full moon night. And I had seen light so bright you could read by it. I had seen the vistas that you could see with the light of that bright full moon. And I thought I knew what light was like. But when I got baptized, it was like I could see the dawn was coming. There was this so much greater authority so much greater source of light and power that was so much more real so much more efficacious than anything that i thought i'd experienced before it was like what is that what is that and they're like oh that's the sunrise and i just thought oh my goodness i just don't know how to take it all in i received the gift of the holy ghost by the laying on of hands um later that day
0: Did did you speak in tongues by chance
1: um, yes, actually I did. Wow. Um, not, a not, not a great long soliloquy or something, but, um, but I did. And when I received the Holy ghost, I was shaken again, uh, by that experience. And the very next day I, um, I was speaking with Gerald Peterson, who is the, um, the presiding prophet the prophet and revelator uh, and he received a revelation from God on my behalf addressing me in the in the voice of the Lord and calling me to a calling that I have that I still have now and it changed my attitude I really thought this was gonna be about following a guy and in the end when I finally met a prophet it wasn't about that guy it was about God And I I remember at this point, I was already kind of resistant. Like, I don't want to follow another false prophet. I don't want a prophet at all. What do I need a prophet for? What do I need a priesthood for? What do I need a church for? I have access to God on my own. I have access to these spiritual experiences. But I couldn't deny that it was very efficacious. This order of the priesthood wasn't leading me to follow Gerald Peterson or Brother Jerry, as we call him. It wasn't about following Brother Jerry. It was about having access to the oracles of God, having access to the power of God that flowed through each of us. And we were all equals. We were all partakers of this gift together. Instead of it being a hierarchical obedience thing, it became a, just a method, a source to which we could look to all rejoice and receive the word of God together. And, from that day to this, I have not yet been disappointed. It's happened again and again. When the temple was completed and dedicated in the lower Smoky Valley of Nevada, where one of our gathering places is, there were great outpourings. And yet there were still people who were there who saw nothing, who heard nothing. But I, I saw, I heard, I experienced a marvelous outpouring. Um, what, did the was- what
0: did you see? What did you see?
1: The temple was filled with spiritual beings. Um, we, different people saw different things, um, but each of them were confirmed by, by multiple witnesses. Um, the temple was filled with this rushing of the spirit. And I believe that's what they talked about with the rushing of great wind. Um, we heard the voices of angels singing um, and in some cases prophesying. We saw the many of the prophets of the Restoration, Joseph Smith, Brigham Young, Wilford Woodruff, and others, come to the temple to see that the work was continuing. Um, and greatest of all, many saw Christ come to accept his temple when it was dedicated. And I'd had these experiences in the Taipei Temple, in the Mesa Temple, where I'd I'd felt powerful spiritual experiences, but I didn't know if that was truly God's house because I didn't see God ever come to it. And so how could I know if he was going to accept the ordinances that we did there? But when Christ came to his temple to accept it, then I knew that it would be acceptable to him. It was a, It's a meager offering, honestly. Did did you see that little temple out
0: there? Did you see Jesus? I did. What does he look like?
1: So there's a couple of different things about that that I suppose I should, uh, I should explain. First of all, most people who see visions of God of, or of Jesus Christ say glorious beyond description. And I think that's an important place to start. A description's insufficient. Um, I think the next point is that we cannot look in the face of God and live in our m- mortal and fallen state. It's not fully possible. There's plenty of places where it talks about that in the scriptures. In spite of the fact there are other places, even in Exodus, for example, where it says he, Moses talks to God face to face. Um, and then, of course, in the Mormon tradition, we believe God to be physical, but also transcendently physical. He's not limited by the physical. Physical, we don't view this physical as lower than the spiritual. We view it as greater than the spiritual in the sense that I'm both – I have a – I'm a spirit. I'm a soul, but a soul is a body and a spirit. It's it's a it, – it's a, an important part of who we are. Um but that's not to say that, uh, for example, when Jesus appeared after his resurrection amongst the, uh, the 11 uh, apostles at the time, the door was locked, it says in the book of Acts. that The door was locked and shut um, and that Jesus was suddenly in the midst of them. Jesus isn't limited by these physical things. And there were people in that room who did not see Christ and people who saw Something along the lines of there is a powerful light coming from that place. there's a powerful something there, and there are others who saw Christ. And so I would say it was like a veil, like the kind you wear. Jesus was Jesus wears a veil to visit this earth and that's not just for our protection. I believe it's also because having ascended above all things, he's not it's not necessary for him to re-enter this mortal world with all of its pollutions and 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 difficulties in the same manner anymore as it was during his mortal ministry for example and so what did i see i saw a man come through the veil without disturbing the curtain and i recognized that man as joseph smith and it looked much like i would consider to be a spiritual Vision, not just an ordinary man entering the room, but uh, to see with the spiritual eye. And then he went back through the veil of the temple and came back in, but this time following another figure, which I could not see as well, just like a great light rushing into the room. And I felt the power and compassion it was this overwhelming feeling. I I don't know if anybody um, listening or if you've ever had the chance to go walk where Jesus walked in Jerusalem. People often talk about the spiritual experience they have of knowing that Jesus Christ stood in this spot in, in one, in this, in this place, the idea that his presence transformed the place that he was standing. And I guess that's what I felt like I was in a building The best we could offer, but like I said, a meager offering. But with this light, with this presence, I felt like this is not just a building anymore. This is holy ground. And I was, and clearly Joseph Smith was in deference to this other, where this this light was, this other being. But I couldn't see. And I was so desperate to see, I prayed, I said, I said, God, if this is your son, I want to see him. I want to know what he looks like. And then it was like, it's more or less a vision within a vision. Then I did have a vision of the mortal Christ to see what Jesus looked like through that veil of light. Hmm. Um, And that wasn't entirely what I had expected either. I suppose, you know, not as, uh, not as gruff or or tough as the uh, LDS uh, artistic renderings. Not as uh, not as thin or as effeminate as the Catholic ones, but taller, fairly slender, dark hair. Um, surprisingly, not not bearded and long-haired as I'd expected either. But that vision was on its own, a a separate experience to feel that I'd known and I'd seen. I'd seen Christ so that I'd known when I saw him. But the main point of the vision that day was for me to know that Christ accepted his temple. That the little offering that we had made by building the best that we could build with all of the means that we had, which isn't much because we're a small church, that even our insufficient offering was made perfected through Christ. It was basically an analogy for each of us that that meager offering of our own works of our own life, it's nothing compared to the glory of God. We cannot make ourselves holy, but when Christ comes, when we're touched by him, it's not just a building anymore. It's a temple. Then you're not just some guy anymore. You're redeemed. Um, And feeling that that ground had been hallowed by the presence of God. Then I felt that I could move forward with confidence, knowing that the ordinances that we could receive there could be efficacious in the sight of God, that the covenants I made with God would truly be received, that my prayers are truly being heard. And so a little while later, after the dedication, when we did the first endowment ceremony in that temple was when I first received that more complete endowment, not the version I gotten in the LDS church, but the version that I believe to be the complete and original endowment. It was so much more glorious and it made so much more sense. Than i thought the endowment could i i'd raise, i'd done a ton of research and i had been a temple worker as i said and i'd done a ton of research into the history of the mormon temple ordinances but they'd never fully made sense until that day and then it was just like oh my goodness those are all the missing pieces of the puzzle it was like somebody had taken an original complete whole, cut it into all these pieces and tried to piece it back together in a weird way and you just couldn't see the full picture anymore but when i did the original endowments in christ church I was like, oh my goodness, now the picture makes sense. You're not trying to force all these puzzle pieces to fit together that don't fit. The whole picture was there. And and then I felt like now I have a a covenant with God that I know helps bring me closer to him, helps bind me to him in a, a different way. That I'm not just aspiring to have a relationship with God, but that I'm in a covenant relationship with God. I feel like that's what happened to Moses on the mountaintop. That's what happened to the seventy elders, seventy elders of Israel, when they went up on the mountain to um, into the presence of God. I don't know that they saw Jehovah. I mean, Jesus talks about seeing God through the burning bush that was not consumed. Uh, Joseph Smith's original language and some of his earlier accounts of the uh, first vision are very similar too. That uh, one of his earliest journal account of the first vision, Joseph Smith says. That there was a pillar of fire, he writes, fire, and then the word fire is crossed out, and then he wrote light. Um, you know, it's like he thought that he thought that the whole grove would burn when the presence of God fell upon it. Um, when each of these great miracles have happened to the prophets, they are in a different relationship to God. You know, it says the word of the Lord came unto. Hosea saying, or the word of the Lord came unto Isaiah saying, and then they're no longer just anybody. They have a duty to go out and to bear this testimony that they heard the voice of God, that they have, that they have a message from him. And I felt that in doing that experience, I need to stand up and I need to testify the same as they did of old. I saw God. He's real. He's alive. Jesus lives. And I don't say Jesus lives just because I read it in a book. I know that Jesus lives because I've seen him and he's alive. He's filled with life and light and power and love. And strange to say, much as Joseph Smith said, for example, in the King Follett discourse and caused so much controversy. Not only does Jesus live, but he's a man. And that's the great mystery, if you could peel back the veil of eternity, is to see that God is in all the form and even the body of a man. And I don't think that is any denigration to God. I think it's a great key to understanding just the value that each of us, each of you have, that we are we are divine in origin. We're divine in nature. And and it's no it's no it's no aspersion upon the dignity of God that he's a man. And yet that and to me that just brings him all the all the more closer. God understands you not because he's some other kind of being with the capability of understanding beings that are unlike him. He is that, but also because he's like you. He's like me. And he's part of a priesthood order. He's part of a divine order that reaches from in the eternities from the beginning to the end of time that God reaches down and participates in the affairs of men. But only as we activate it from beneath, as the Kabbalists would say, only as we open the door from our side and let him in little by little, he becomes more and more involved in our lives. Um, And so as a witness of Christ's resurrection, I rejoice whenever I hear others have had that witness. Now, there are people who are not of my faith who claim that they have had visions of Christ. And I don't feel like it's my place to cast any aspersions upon that witness either, having had one myself. God reveals himself to whomever he will. And I believe that he inspires people of all nations, of all languages, of all religions. And this goes back to my Buddhism. Uh, There's some really amazing visions that have occurred um, to even Buddhist teachers, for example. And I have no qualms to pick with any of their experiences. That does not to say that false prophets aren't among us. There are many, great many false prophets who will try to profit off of some special connection to the divine that they'll say that they have that you don't. Uh, That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying quite the opposite. I'm saying God is not far from any of us. Um, and so the only time I'm, I would question a man's vision, another man's vision is if he's using it for his own gain, in which case I'd say, you might've seen a God, but it wasn't the real one. It was probably the God of this world as they sometimes call the devil. You know, if he's telling you to go out there and exploit, if he's telling you to go out there and harm, or he's telling you that because you saw him, you get to be more special than other people and you get to, or you get to take their money then I would say, oh, watch out for that. That's a false prophet. Um, There are such people, of course. But I think there are also a great many people who truly have experiences of the divine. Because God wants all of us to know him. He does. Um, And even in the temple that day, there were people who said, what was that light? There must have been some being from the other side that came. Who was that? Um, And Brother Jerry... um, said all the prophets of the restoration were here at the dedication of the temple and the Lord Jesus Christ himself came to accept the temple. And when he said that, it just confirmed what I had already experienced. And I had other, I've had many other friends who talked about it in the same time, in the same place as he came and stood to the east of the altar and they knew the, the place where he stood even if they didn't see the same vision that I saw of Jesus Christ, they knew he was there. Um, and that just, you know, it's just further confirmation because we're not in, because that's one of the things I love about having a church is that I'm not in this alone. It's not just that I had an experience. It's that I had that experience with other people who can then, who then also talked about it and reconfirmed my faith. Um and became second witnesses to me, just like I was a second witness to them about what had happened.
0: So, you know, this, I, I, I really wanted my audience to hear. First of all, I just want everybody to know I haven't heard any of these stories before. Um, and so I'm, I'm glad to witness them firsthand and hear uh, what you had to say. I actually was not expecting a lot of what you were, were to tell As a matter of fact, I alluded to it in our last um, conversation about how I got the Zoom link to your uh, church service. And it was not what I was expecting. Um, first of all, folks, I'm, I'm, I go and I, I hop on the Zoom and there's this guy sitting on the couch and he's wearing a yarmulke. I'm like, I got a lot of messianic. <laughs> I told some messianic Christian friends of mine, I said, you, you know, yeah. you'd be shocked. The guy was wearing a yarmulke and their, their jaws dropped.
1: <laughs> yeah. Yeah, this is one of the revelations um, is about how we can symbolically better show our our um, obedience to the Lord. And so, yeah, we cover our heads and it, when we do ordinances and such.
0: So, you know, uh, I have so many questions for you that I want to ask you. And part of me is thinking, we got
1: to do a part three. <laughs> I, didn't, I did not. I did not think I was actually going to go there either with the story, but I just felt like maybe I should tell it. I've never yeah. told it on a recording before. So,
0: well, and I appreciate that, you know, and it's, it's actually it's been a real honor and privilege because many people on camera and off camera have shared stories that they haven't told people before. And I consider that a privilege and, and, and uh, to be able to be that person to have that conversation with. So I do have a few more questions with you that, um, okay. Um, but I, would you be open to coming back for when we do like a doc, like where you talk about social issues and doctrines, because I I do think that, okay, so let me just kind of I have some follow-up questions first of all you said you weren't interested at all in like joining the protestant church and i think it's very interesting because you 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 view things a certain way it has to have authority it has to have like a you know, unbroken connection um and there's and it's, it's like three or four different right. things that are important to you now can i just give you maybe my view of it now i come well, from please, a, please. yeah i come from a protestant tradition right and i never ever was ever interested in anything like authority, or like the lineage or anything like that. And I submit to you, and I just want to hear what you have to say about this, is that there's the Peach, the patrine way, the, you know, Peter's mm-hmm. way, and there's the Pauline way. Paul didn't okay. have to have arms, hands put on him. Christ came to him, and he got his authority as an apostle in a much different way than Peter and the others did. So let me just propose to you that perhaps there's a Pauline option that that, a, that we believe in the priesthood of all believers we believe in a personal um, born again experience um, can you see the validity in that viewpoint
1: i can and yet of course i do see the other viewpoint so for example peter saw the lord on his road on the road to damascus but then it was but then he was blinded it wasn't until he actually received hands placed on his head that he regained his sight um, and so that would be kind of my, um, patrine, um, argument to that, that yes, the Pauline experience is necessary, but it's not all sufficient. It's a portion of it. It would be kind of the way that I end up looking at it. Okay. But um,
0: just, just real quick. See, let me just say, let, let's say that you and I are hardwired a little bit differently where you have to have all that. Sure. And I say, I don't, I'm not interested in any of that. And I look at the apostle Paul is my example that I would follow.
1: Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, I, and even even though I see some of that in Paul <laughs> as well, I still feel like um, no, I, I I see validity in that. I, actually, this this goes back to another kind of a, another Mormon way that I look at it, and that is I I have a very different view than what most people's characterization is of this idea of the three degrees of glory. Mormonism has this tiered heaven concept, right, where we have multiple heavens or something, um, and I kind of view that as like different. Denominations or different experiences. You and I, according to my theology, you and I are both going to heaven. We're both saved. We're both redeemed. What's the difference then, with us having different religions and different perspectives on on these things? And from my point of view, that would be all about um, that would be all about what kind of relationship we develop with Christ and with And and what kind of job I expect that we want to do in the next life. So, for example, what kind of heaven do you picture? Protestants, generally, their view of heaven is what I would consider to be the terrestrial kingdom view of heaven, according to Mormonism. And conveniently enough, in Mormonism, that's basically the place that all Christians are going, is that heaven. And so I don't think it's any denigration. Again, we we get a very, very mixed up view that it's like good better best that that like somehow the celestial kingdom is better than the terrestrial kingdom better than the celestial kingdom i don't view it as better i view it as different we each have somewhat within our souls we have a a unique purpose and destiny and the glory of god is that he brings all of us into that perfect destiny and purpose that is within our own nature. It's, it's what we were always meant to do. I I guess there's a bit Calvinist of me almost, right? Um, Is that essentially there's an election that God calls and chooses us to fulfill certain purposes. And, but instead of viewing that as one thing, the way I feel that most Christians do, I view that as a, a place of infinite diversity, that heaven will be a place of infinite diversity, different people doing different jobs with different perspectives but that one great whole of that being that God's family is complete, that all of us have a place there. And I feel like that's what Jesus is, is saying to us when he says, I go to prepare a place for you. In my, in my father's house, there are many mansions. I go to prepare a place for you. If it were not so, I would have told you, he says in that verse. And I feel like what he's saying is like, look, if there wasn't room enough in heaven for there to be a grand diversity of each of us fulfilling our own highest good, our own highest destiny. I would have warned you like that would be terrible, right? If, what if, uh, cause I'm a bit of, cause my view on Mormonism is very similar to universalism. I feel that most of us are going to heaven. The difference is and where the, 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 the hell type verses come in and and the suffering verses come in, in my view is this temporary uh, difficulty that we go through uh, before we get to that final place. Um but that essentially we will all be able to receive our own highest good. So so what am I trying to say here? I'm trying to say that I think that there's absolutely room for that to be a full and complete view, a full and complete path, a full and complete realization of the soul and bring us into the presence of God. But so, I also view there is a diversity there so that I think there's room for Pauline and Patrician christians in heaven and that they may continue to see things differently and they may continue to have different roles
0: okay and so, so
1: the mormon just place just in so. that heaven is
0: i'm yeah. sorry keep going just continue. so the mormon place
1: in that heaven is yet another different kind of role or different kind of way of looking at it and that that difference could essentially allow us to do what mormons want to do in heaven which is essentially to become like god this deification concept That we would, much like Adam and Eve, we would create worlds and go down into those worlds and continue to have a posterity on those worlds. Now, there are people, even raised in Mormonism, for example, with that as some kind of highest ideal, who are like, I don't want any part of that. Are you kidding? You're telling me that the highest heaven for me is to have babies forever? You know, I've heard people say, so yeah, that sounds awful. You know, but to some of us, that's wonderful. Infinite, infinite creation, infinite connections, infinite love through infinite relationships, new children, new friends, new brothers, new sisters, new wives. This is what the polygamy doctrine is all about. It's about the idea of this infinite growth. I think that there's a place for that, but I definitely don't think it's for everybody. So you—you
0: you, one of the big things that really bothers a lot of evangelical Christians like me is that we're told that yes, you'll be in heaven, but you'll never be in the presence of the
1: Father. Do you believe that? I believe what it says in doc, uh, Doctrine and Covenants section 76 is not receive the fullness of the Father. In other words, you won't be doing the same job. But most Christians aren't expecting you to do the same job anyway. Right? They're expecting to praise God, infinitely receiving of the joy of God, the love of God. And I think that that is absolutely received by everyone who goes to heaven.
0: Will I be able to be, be in the presence of God? What? Yes, I'll see the father. Yeah. Okay. Is that, is that a, a deviation of Mormon LDS doctrine or do you think most that's, that's a standard belief? Because I've, I've, I've heard that generally speaking, that's you know, I, I'm
1: not going to claim that anything that I've ever said on any of this is the standard belief. Right. Like I was saying at the beginning, I used to think that it was, I used to think I was like the standard orthodoxy. Right. But yeah. then I found out more and more that I wasn't. So maybe that's not, but I, that's what I believe. Okay. That's all, that's, I guess that's all the more I can say.
0: Okay. That's, that's really interesting to me. So, um, okay. So folks, I have quite a few great questions lined up here. Then I really feel like this, this conversation we had tonight had to happen. Can you believe that?
1: Yeah, but it did, just took a different direction than we had. Right, but I'm saying it
0: that, that direction was meant to, I mean, I think that this was good that we had this conversation that the audience can hear this. I have a lot of great questions, but I really feel like, and, and so I think what we're going to do in our next episode, is going to be like. Uh, just like a bullet or just around you know where we just go next let's talk
1: let's talk history let's talk culture let's talk all kinds of stuff about what that i've researched and get into that then yeah
0: yeah Yeah. so that that's i'm very excited about that and folks i just want to you know thank all of you for uh, taking the time to watch this so we're going to film a part three i don't know exactly when we'll be doing this but it's, it's it will be coming down the road when we can work it out with our schedules um and uh boy yeah this is this is this is Great, dude. Uh, Benjamin, I just want to thank you so much for coming on to the program tonight.
1: Yeah, thank you for having me.
0: And uh, I just want to uh, talk again. Yeah, we'll talk <laughs> again. And I just remind, remind my audience to uh, like and subscribe and hit the notification button uh, to be informed. And you're going to be getting a uh, new video coming out. I've got some great uh, interviews lined up. And of course, we got Benjamin coming back on. So everybody uh, be well. We're going to get through this epidemic together and uh, uh, God bless.